Good morning. Um, if y'all could turn to Exodus 20, um, we're going to read through 1 through 2, and then also uh, 15. So if you could remain standing, and, and if you have a Bible, turn to that, um, and we'll begin. Uh, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not steal. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. I'm Hart Trailer. I'm one of the pastors here. Would y'all join me in prayer before we get started? God, thank you for another Sunday, another opportunity to gather with our brothers and sisters and to worship you through song and prayer, an opportunity to study your word. I pray that Christ is proclaimed this morning. I ask that your spirit would guide my words, that I would proclaim your truths clearly and boldly and lovingly, that you would make our hearts receptive to receive your word, and that we would be transformed by it. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So I have a picture I want to share with y'all. It's going to be up on the screen. That is me in the back of a police car. It was taken my senior year of college uh, after a Carolina football game. Um, now before... Before half of y'all want to fire me and before the other half thinks, yes, we've got an edgy pastor, let me, <laughs> let me give you the details behind this picture. Um, so as I mentioned, I was in college and I had learned about this road that was near the football stadium and uh, it wasn't a very well-traveled road and uh, because of that, it was a great place to park for football games. Um, you could pretty much wait up right up until kickoff and go there, and you were pretty much ensured that you could find a spot to, a spot to park and for, park for free. And so as a college student, this was, this was incredible. This was a great secret, um, one of the greatest secrets of Columbia. And um, <laughs> so myself, Vanessa, and some of our friends went to the game, came back from the game, got to my car, and we realized someone had broken into my car. The window was shattered. There was a big rock on the seat. They'd obviously thrown the rock at the car because there was also a huge dent on the side of my door. Um, so we, of course, are investigating. We're looking at the car, and they've rummaged through everything. There's papers, jumper cables are thrown, you know, um, flashlights, tools, just all the random stuff you have in the car. They've rummaged through. Um, amazingly, the only valuable thing in my car was my iPod, which that doesn't sound fancy then, but back now, but back then, this was the iPod video, and this was like brand new, like 150 bucks. This was state-of-the-art technology, and they hadn't taken it. Like, it was still just sitting right there in the open, and they didn't take it, but we did realize, oh, I should mention also, my car was really dusty, and they wrote on the back, Mo Jones was here. I don't know who Mo Jones is, but that's how we refer to him as Mo Jones now, whenever we talk about that moment, and um, Vanessa realized Mo Jones did take something. He actually ate something. Uh, on our way to the game, Vanessa had some carrots that she was eating, and she had one left over right before we left for the game, and she realized, hey, this carrot that used to be this long has been eaten down to the stub now. <laughs> so apparently Mo Jones didn't, wasn't interested in my iPod, but he was interested in that carrot. Um, now, how does that picture relate to this story? Um, we called the cops, and as I mentioned, this was a hidden road, so the cop couldn't figure out where we were. So I had to go out to the main road, flag the cop down, and then the cop let me ride in the back seat back to my car. And then Vanessa, being the great girlfriend that she was, took a picture and didn't realize I would use it 13 years later as a sermon illustration. But um, as you can imagine, I felt a lot of emotions in that moment. Um, but two that I felt were, I felt violated, which 
if, if you've ever heard someone who's been stolen from or if you've been stolen from, you've probably heard them use that word. They, they felt violated. The fact that they broke into my, my, you know, my possessions and damaged stuff and, 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 and invaded my personal space, I felt violated. Um, but I also was surprised. I mean, the carrot thing was weird, but I genuinely was surprised <laughs> that they didn't take my iPod. Um, and I think those two feelings are a reflection of the world we live in. Uh, we we uh, innately know that stealing is wrong. Al Mohler put it this way, the Bible dignifies personal property and roots this dignity and the imago Dei, the image of God. To steal from another is not merely to steal his possession. It's to assault another person's dignity as a human being who has the right to the toil of his hands, to the produce of her talents, to the property that's rightfully ours. What he's saying is we've been made in the image of God and he has woven within our, the fibers of our beings this understanding that it is wrong to take the possessions that don't belong to us. It's wrong to steal. So we know that. But the sad reality is we also, we also know that we live in a world where it happens all the time. So we expect it. That's why we collectively, as individuals and as businesses, we spend billions of dollars each year on security. We've come to expect it to happen. That's why we're also surprised when it doesn't happen. That's why I was surprised they didn't take my iPod. I mean, they could have easily just swiped that, and I would have never tracked down Mo Jones to find that. Um, it's why we love those feel-good stories on the news when the Good Samaritan finds the, the purse in the public place with all the cash in it, and they return it to the person they didn't take the cash out of. We love those stories because it's so rare, right? It's, we, we think to ourselves, oh, there's still some good people in the world. So we know stealing is wrong, and yet we also expect it to happen. So as I was preparing the sermon to, to talk about the Eighth Commandment to not steal, I've really struggled with how do you preach this commandment to people that know it's wrong but also recognize it happens? How do I teach it in a way uh, that it's not going to feel like I'm preaching to the choir? And so the first thought I had was, well, maybe we could talk about the various ways we can steal because taking material possessions is just one type of stealing. You can steal people's times. If you're an employee and your employer has hired you to work a specific amount of hours and you don't put in those hours, then you're stealing time from your employer. If you've been hired to do a job and you do a bad job at it, then you're stealing. We can steal recognition and praise that should go to someone else, but we take it for ourselves. Plagiarism is stealing where we take someone's work and we try to pass it off as our own. Manipulation like flattering and guilt trips, those are types of stealing. We can steal from God. We can take his glory. In the book of Acts, we're told that King Herod stole glory from God, and then so the Lord sent an angel to him and struck him dead. So we can steal in all sorts of ways. But when I was talking with Vanessa this week and just sharing, this is what I'm thinking I'm going to talk about, she kind of gave me a look and said something about, well, I'm going to pray that the Lord shows you a, a better way to preach this. That'll be more engaging. So I realized I, I probably need to go back to the drawing board and, and rethink this. So... Uh, after a further time processing, praying about it, I ended up landing on two things that I want to talk about uh, this morning. So the first is, rather than spending time talking about stealing, I thought, well, let's go back to the Bible, to the moment, the first moment in history where stealing took place. Let's go to that. Let's let that be the backdrop, and let's see what we can learn from that moment. And then the second thing is, let's focus on the positive of this command, the ten, some of the Ten Commandments are given in a negative way. You shall not do blank. But they have implied positives attached to them. So don't worship other gods. That's the negative. The implied positive is worship the one true God. Don't commit adultery, negative. 
but strive and build a marriage that reflects the beauty of Christ and his union with the church. That would be the positive. So what would be the positive of the eighth commandment? So those are the two things I want to look at. So for the first one, if y'all would flip with me to Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to be in there for a little while. Now, of course, Genesis 1 and 2, uh, we get the creation narrative. Um, 1 gives us more chronologically. This is what the creation looked like. 2 gives us more details about the creation of mankind. And we're going to pick up actually in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 first. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then jump over to chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin costs. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Of course, we know the rest of the story. God pronounces his judgment on the serpent and the man and the woman, and then he ultimately expels them from the garden. So what can we learn from this moment? Well, we see in chapter 1 and 2, we we actually only see once the word command. And it was in verse 16 of chapter 2. God said, he commanded the man, you may surely eat of, this, of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. So God has given Adam one command, and he says, all these trees you have access to, and you can enjoy them. You have complete and absolute access to them. But this one tree is not yours. It does not belong to you. You cannot take from it. Do not steal from it. So what can we learn from this moment when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they took what was not theirs? They stole from God. What could God teach us from this moment? I have a bunch of points I want to make. I actually have nine points, but I'll try to make them quickly. And um, in an effort to be a good Baptist, I have alliterated all nine of them. Um, They will all start with the letter D, so hopefully that will help you note takers keep track. But uh, since there are so many, let's just go ahead and jump in. So the first one is deceptive. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was was more crafty than any other beast of the field. I don't know about y'all, but when I read that and I see the word crafty, a lot of red flags immediately jump up, right? I I think to myself, how in the world did Adam, Adam and Eve get tricked by Satan? If he has this reputation of being crafty, well, when he approaches, shouldn't they be like, uh oh, here comes that crafty snake. We need to be careful. 
I honestly, I think to myself of, uh, this shows that I have kids, but I think of Swiper the Fox from Door the Explorer, right? I mean, he's this mischievous fox that goes around. He's got the burglar mask on with the eye holes. And anytime you see him, you know what he's about to do. He's about to steal from Dora. And we're supposed to say, Swiper, no swiping. And, oh, man, he walks away when we stop him. So I want to think of Satan in that way. He's just this mischievous little prankster, and we know what he's trying to do whenever he comes on the scene. That's actually not what's being described here. That's actually not what the word crafty means. The Hebrew word for crafty is actually just a neutral word. It can be either good or bad. It can be translated as subtle or prudent. Uh, We actually see it throughout the Old Testament. And um, in the book of Proverbs, it's used eight times. And every time it's used as a positive way. For example, Proverbs 14, 18 says, The simple inherit folly, but the prudent or the crafty are crowned with knowledge. So it can be used as a, a good word or a positive word. So when Satan approaches Eve and he's described as crafty, it doesn't necessarily mean that something evil is approaching her. It's more subtle. It's more sly. There's, there's no, there's no, those red flags, they're not there. And that's the same with us. It's true with us. When temptation presents itself to us, it's not always presented in a blatantly evil way. Satan is deceptive in the way he tempts us. And oftentimes when he does tempt us, he does it in a way that actually appears okay to us. I like how Ben Stewart illustrates this. He says, all right, imagine I have a glass beaker, you know, like one of those science beakers, and I've got a liquid in it, and it's, it's bubbling and it's smoking. I've got thick rubber gloves on. I've got goggles on. I've got these metal tongs, and I'm holding it, and I'm holding it way out. And I come up to someone, and I say, hey, drink this. They're going to probably say, yeah, no, thank you. That looks dangerous. But then he says, but if I change the aesthetics, I might be able to get that person to accept it. If I take that liquid out and I put it in a shot glass, I turn the lights down, turn the black lights up, get the bass thumping, get an attractive person to come and say, hey, baby, take this. That person may actually accept it, right? And that's what Satan does with us. He changes the aesthetics. He'll, he'll take what is dangerous and he'll repackage it and make it appear appealing. He'll make it look intelligent, modern, progressive, macho, fun, innocent. Satan is crafty and he's subtle in the ways he tempts us. He knows our weaknesses and he knows how to present temptation to us in a way that hides the danger and makes it appealing. So Satan is deceptive, but how is he deceptive? We see two ways in his conversation with Eve. One way is he depersonalizes God, and that's our second point. He depersonalizes God. So in Genesis 1 and 3, every time God is named, we get the name Elohim, God Almighty. And it's really cool because in chapter 1, he creates the heavens and the earth, right? He creates the universe. Elohim, the God Almighty, creates this. But then in chapter 2, his name changes. Moses changes the name that appears. We see it in verse 5. We begin to see the name, the Lord God. And Lord is all capitalized. That means Yahweh. That's the personal name of God, right? That's the God who has promised to be our God, and we will be his people. And it's a really beautiful moment because what's happening in chapter 2? God gets into creation, and he is taking the dust, and he's forming Adam, and he makes Eve So this personal God creates us. And we see 12 times throughout chapter 2 and the beginning of of chapter 3, he's called the Lord God. 
But look what Satan does halfway through verse 1. He says to the woman, did God actually say? He switches the name back to Elohim. Now, it's not wrong for us to call God Elohim, but remember, the serpent is crafty, and he always has ulterior motives. So what he does here is he depersonalizes God. He draws attention away from the personal relationship God has with his people. He makes them into an impersonal and distant being who isn't intimately involved with his creation and doesn't care about what's going on. And he does that with us too, doesn't he? Have you had those lies whispered in your ears? God doesn't love you. He doesn't care what's going on in your life. He doesn't hear those prayers you pray. So he depersonalizes God, but he also deceives by distorting God's word. Look what he says to Eve. He said, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? We should all know the answer. No, that's not what God said. We just read it. God said to Adam, you can eat of all the trees except for this one. But he distorts God's word. He deceives us. And one of the ways he does that is by distorting and twisting God's word. And he may do that by whispering lies into your ear. He may do that by bringing people into your life who present half-truths to you and, and slowly veer you off the straight and narrow. Now we get to verse 2. All that has happened in verse 1. We get to verse 2, and Eve has an opportunity to respond and to shut this down. Really, Adam should be the one that responds, right? And what they should say is, no serpent. Genesis 2, verse 16 through 17 says this, right? They should have responded that way. But that's not what happens. Adam stays silent, and Eve, what does she do? She follows in the footsteps of Satan. Look at verse 3. What does she call God? Does she call him the Lord God? Does she use the personal name? No, she sticks with Elohim. She depersonalizes God. And she also distorts God's word. What does she do? She adds to the command. She says, we're not to eat of that tree, neither shall you touch it. But God never said anything about, not, about touching the tree. He doesn't care what they, if they touch the tree or not. He doesn't want them to take the fruit off and eat it. So she has distorted God's words. But not only does she uh, depersonalize him and distort him, but this leads to her diminishing God. And I apologize. I, don't, I was going to try to, like, second point's this, third point's this. I don't think I've been doing that. So we're, like, at point four or five right now. Uh, she diminishes God. Um, one way she does that is by diminishing his blessings. Now, we don't see this in the English um, but in verse 16 of chapter 2, when God says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, in the Hebrew, God actually repeats the word eat. So he actually says, you may surely eat, eat of every tree of the garden. Now, does that mean God has a stuttering problem? What exactly does that mean? In the Hebrew, they actually, to emphasize something, they would repeat the word. So this is like the equivalent of us saying, seriously, I'm not kidding. So God is emphatically saying to Adam, you can eat, eat of all these trees. And as a side note, I think when we picture the, the Garden of Eden, we think of a nice grassy field, or at least I do, and there's an apple tree there, and there's a banana tree over there, and there's an orange tree there. But um, obviously we don't know what the garden looked like, but I think it's a little more vast than that because did y'all notice where Adam, Adam and Eve hid when the Lord was approaching them? It said they hid themselves among the trees of the garden. So I think that's implying that there's just this vast paradise of trees and vegetation. 
so much so that they thought they could actually hide in it to hide from God. And God is saying, you can eat, eat of all that. You have access to all of this. There's just this one tree that is not yours. But when Eve responds to Satan, all she says is, yeah, we can eat of those trees. She doesn't say eat, eat. She doesn't repeat that blessing. She doesn't see that as a gift from God. She diminishes his blessing. It's almost as if she's saying, yeah, we can eat from that, but we can't eat from that tree. So she diminishes his blessing, but she also diminishes his judgment. In verse 17 of chapter 2, guess what God does? He says, if you eat of that tree, then you will surely die. He actually says, die, die. He emphatically tells Adam, if you break this command that I've given you, you will absolutely, seriously, without a doubt, I'm not kidding, die. And yet when she responds to Satan, what does she say? Lest you die. So she's basically going, no, we can eat from those trees, but we can't eat from that one. We might die or something like that. She diminishes his judgment. It's as if she's skeptical and sees it as an empty threat from God. Then we get into verse 4 and 5, and the serpent gives a response. He says to the woman, you will not surely die. Interesting side note, he says, die, die. It's a reminder to us that Satan knows God's words. He says, you will not surely die, die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then in verse 6, she sees the fruit. It looks delightful. It looks desirable. She takes it. She eats. She gives to Adam, and he eats. And so we see in this moment that discontentment and doubt were in their hearts. Those are our fifth and sixth points. Discontentment and doubt. They didn't see God's command to eat, eat from all the other trees as a blessing and a gift. They were discontent. They didn't see that what God had given them was enough. But they also ultimately doubted. They didn't believe that it was for their good to not be able to have that tree and to have the fruit from that tree. And they also doubted God's judgment. They doubted that death would actually be the result So they take the fruit, they eat it, thinking it's going to make them like God, but instead they despair. That's our next point. They despaired. Their eyes are open. They knew they were naked. They were ashamed. They tried to hide their nakedness. And ultimately, they tried to hide themselves from God. Their sin led them to despair. But not only to despair, it ultimately led to death. Verses 14 through 19, God gives his, uh, pronounces his judgment on the serpent, on the woman, on the man. But it's all summed up in verse 19 when he says to Adam, to the ground you will return, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Just as God had promised, their disobedience led to death. And it's a reminder to us that our sin will ultimately lead to death. Now, if I ended right there, we'd all be sad but we know that there's, a, there's good news in this message. And this is the last point I want to make. There's something beautiful that takes place. I, I've been really excited about when I kind of learned and made this connection of God's name and how it shows up in these opening chapters. Because we see, God, uh, we see in the opening verses of chapter 3, Satan changes back to Elohim. And we see it four times, it's Elohim. But then Adam and Eve sin. And then we get to verse 8, and what happens? Moses changes the name back, 
And who is it? Who did they hear the sound of? It's the Lord God. Isn't that beautiful? That they just sinned against God Almighty, and yet the personal Yahweh, the personal covenantal God, approaches them in the garden. And for the rest of the chapter, he's referred to as the Lord God, even as he pronounces judgment on them. It's the personal God. It's the reminder that he is the God who has promised to never leave or forsake us. He remains close and personal to his people despite their sins. He doesn't only pronounce death. He promises deliverance. He says to the serpent, there will be a day where I will send a boy and he is going to crush your head. And through doing that, he's going to deliver my people. Isn't that cool? So what can we learn from that? 1 Peter 5.8 says Satan is a prowling lion and he's looking to devour us. Alistair Begg described it this way. A holy character does not prevent temptation. Jesus was tempted. When Satan tempts us, his sparks fall upon tinder. But in Christ's case, it was like striking sparks on water, and yet the enemy continued his evil work. Now if the devil goes on striking when the let me say that again. Now if the devil goes on striking when there is no result, referring to Christ in the wilderness, how much more will he do it when he knows the inflammable stuff our hearts are made of? Though you become greatly sanctified by the Holy Spirit, expect that the great dog of hell will bark at you still. So we need to be on guard against the ways he will try to entice us. We need to be on guard against the crafty serpent. We need to be on guard against the deceptive ways he tries to lure us into sin. So how can we do that? How can we be on guard? Well, one vital way is knowing God's word. His word is described as a sword that we're to use in battle against Satan. And so when Satan whispers those lies and he tries to depersonalize God, we should wield promises like Isaiah 32. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the fires, you will not be burned, for I am the Lord your God. And when Satan tries to distort God's word, we need to respond like Jesus did in the wilderness. No, Satan, it is written. God says this, thus says the Lord. We need to be grounded in the word. We also need to be on guard against the weeds that sprout up in our hearts. Weeds like discontentment and doubt. And when we begin to see them sprouting up, we need to uproot them. John Owen said it like this, be killing sin or it will be killing you. But he actually goes on to say, you can't simply keep killing sin because if, you, if that's all you're doing, it's just going to keep growing back. You have to kill it and then replace it. We have to uproot the sin and then we need to plant righteousness in its place. Paul said it like this in Ephesians, take off the old self and put on the new self. And so that leads to the second thing I want to talk about. It's not simply enough to say, don't steal. We need to replace it with something. So what's the implied positive of this command? If we take off the old self, which is stealing, and we put on the new self, what are we putting on? Tim Keller described it this way. You have not stopped being a thief when you've stopped taking. You have stopped being a thief when you start giving. So the new self that we put on is generosity. So for the last bit of our time, would y'all flip with me to Luke 19? Luke chapter 19. This is probably a very familiar story to most of y'all. 
Um, we're going to look at it and see what we can learn. Luke 19, beginning in verse 1, he entered Jericho, referring to Jesus, and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to save the lost. So we're told in the opening verses of this story that Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector and he was rich. And what we can deduce from that is he would have been despised by his fellow Jews. So let me give you a quick history lesson. Rome figured out that the best way, the most effective way to collect taxes was to hire local people. So that meant going into a region and finding someone saying, you're going to do this. Well, Rome, all they cared about was getting the money they wanted. But they didn't care if these tax collectors got, uh, collected additional money. So that led to tax collectors stealing from their own family, from their friends. And so they became very despised and hated. That's why we see in the gospel so often it's sinners and tax collectors. Jesus dining with the sinners and tax collectors. It's because the, the tax collectors were so despised and hated. The, the Mishnah, which was a collection of rabbinical teachings, it says that you can lie to tax collectors. And their logic is because it's not lying if you lie to an animal, and tax collectors are no better than animals. So they were despised and hated. So while the fact that Zacchaeus was a wee little man certainly played a part in him going up in that tree, I'm sure the fact that he was also despised contributed to that as well. He's probably not able to find a place. You know, People are there, and he's small, he can't see around them, and they're not friends with him. They're not going to let him come in front of them. So he had to figure out another way. So he climbs up in that tree, and then something incredible happens. Jesus comes to Zacchaeus. And he says, come down, Zacchaeus. I need to stay at your house. Now, we don't know when salvation happened. We don't know what the conversations look like. But we do know Zacchaeus came down and received him joyfully. And then we see in verse 8 that a transformation took place. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, you can't serve God and money because you'll love one and you'll hate the other. Zacchaeus loved money. J.D. Greer described it this way. A tax collector became a tax collector because they wanted money so badly they were willing to sacrifice everything, their society, their family, their integrity, everything to get it. Zacchaeus was so gripped by the desire for riches that he was willing to steal from his family and friends and be despised by them. But then he encounters Jesus, and this incredible transformation takes place. Verse 8 he comes to Jesus, he comes as a kid coming to their parents saying, look, mommy, daddy, look what I've done. He comes as he says, look, Jesus, half of my goods I'm giving to the poor. And then all those people that I've stolen from, I'm going to repay them and I'm going to do it fourfold. That is way more than what the law would have required of him. But a transformation had taken place in his heart. Robert Murray McShane, who was an old Scottish minister, said this, 
the more you understand who Jesus is and what he has done for you, the more generous you become. We see that's true with Zacchaeus. We see it's true with the woman, the, the sinful woman with the alabaster jar. We see it true with Mary when she takes that expensive oil and anoints Jesus before his death. We see it with the Philippian church when they supported Paul and no one else was supporting him. We see it throughout the book of Acts with the early church and the way they were selling their, their possessions and supporting each other. So that leads to the obvious question. When you understand who Jesus is and what he has done for you, the more generous you become, the question is, is that true of you? Is that true of me? Is that true of us? As you encounter Jesus, do you become more generous? Now, some of you, you may struggle with generosity because you worry about tomorrow. And for you, money provides a sense of security. But remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 6. When he said, do not be anxious about your life and what you'll eat and drink and what you'll wear. Look at the birds, look at the flowers. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Some of you may be more selfish and you're thinking, I don't want to be generous because I want to improve my standard of living first. Well, let me remind you that there's a guy that went down in history with the, 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 the title, rich young ruler. I think if we're all honest, we would love those three words to describe us. And yet, when he encountered Jesus, do y'all remember what he did? He walked away sorrowful. And scripture actually says he walked away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Literally, the Bible's telling us he was so wealthy and had such great possessions, that's what led him to be sorrowful. But when we contrast that with Zacchaeus, he was wealthy, he had great possessions, but what brought him joy? It was receiving Christ, it was being generous. It was submitting to the will of Christ. A nicer car, a bigger house, the fanciest jewelry, the, the latest technology, that stuff's not going to bring you joy and satisfaction. But walking in submission, receiving Christ will. Maybe you struggle with generosity because of how little you have. But let me encourage you, remember the widow's offering. She gave two small copper coins. That's an insignificant amount. And yet that caught the eye of Jesus. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Or maybe you struggle with generosity because you just get discouraged and you think, is it really making an impact? Does my giving to the church and to missionaries, to ministries, to do the acts of kindness that I do towards other people, does it really make a difference? Is it really having an impact in the world? We don't have the time to, to go into this, but I would encourage you to go home and study Aquila and Priscilla. They're a married couple that we see throughout the New Testament. And God used their generosity to do some incredible things. They helped fund Paul, several of Paul's mission trips. They hosted some of the early churches in their home. In the book of Romans, Paul says they risked their necks for his life. And then he goes on to say, all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks for them. And you can even make the case that through their generosity, they contributed to four of the books of the New Testament being, being created. Through their generosity, they helped fund Paul, which led to him writing First and Second Corinthians and Ephesians and Romans. God used their generosity in profound ways. We don't sit around talking about them. We know the names of Paul and Peter and John, and yet God used them in profound ways. So we may never get to see how God uses our generosity but we can be confident that he does use it and he will use it to further and advance his kingdom. So we're going to transition to communion now. And as we do that, I want to um, transition back to Zacchaeus for a moment. There's actually a bit of irony 
in that story. In Deuteronomy 21, we're told that a man hanged on a tree is cursed. So when Zacchaeus, that wee little man, scurries up the sycamore tree, we can see some symbolism there. He's a cursed man, and rightfully so. He was a bad guy. He deserved that curse on him. But then this incredible moment where Christ comes to him and says, Zacchaeus, come down. And ultimately, Christ is going to take the place of Zacchaeus on that tree. Galatians 3, Paul tells us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And just as Jesus called Zacchaeus down and took his place, if you have been washed by the blood of Christ, then he has called you down from that tree. And he has taken your place as well. And so you are welcome to the communion table. And I want to encourage you as you take the bread and the juice to remember that truth, to rejoice in that truth, and also pray and ask God, God, in response to this incredible truth, in response to your incredible generosity to me, would you cause my heart to overflow with generosity towards others? If you're not a believer, then please know that uh, this is a family meal, and so we ask that you refrain from taking part in this. But if you will, I know I've given a lot of stories this morning, but let me share one more. In Luke 12, Jesus tells a parable. He says there's a farmer who has a really successful crop. He gets lots of produce, lots of harvest out of it, and rather than being generous, he decides to build a bigger storehouse to store it all. But then that night he dies, and God calls him a fool. And Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. We're all striving for treasures. We're all building kingdoms. And if you're not a believer, then the kingdom that you build and the treasures you store up will not last. Moths and rust will destroy. Thieves will steal. As the late great Jimi Hendrix said, castles made of sand will melt into the sea eventually. But as a Christian, we get the privilege of being on mission with God, which means we have the privilege of joining him in building his eternal kingdom and storing up imperishable treasures in heaven. So let me challenge you with asking the question to your heart, would I rather build a sandcastle that's going to eventually melt into the sea, or would I rather take part in building a kingdom that's going to last for eternity, that has eternal value? Would you all pray with me? God, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory. But we confess that so often we try to steal those for ourselves. So would you forgive us? Thank you for your incredible generosity to us. And may we be so overwhelmed by the reality that Christ took the curse upon himself on our behalf that our hearts overflow with generosity towards others. Thank you that we have the privilege and the opportunity to take part in building your eternal kingdom. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.